All right, the scripture this morning is an assortment from Romans 14, 15, and 16, and I will do my best to cue you as I move through. But I believe it will also be behind me. Yes, I was going to read it from the screen, but I don't think I can see it. So, so we're going to start with Romans 14, 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Uh, verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 13. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And now we're going to chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We can believe 
to hundreds of promises in Romans. Our emotions can be moved by all that is ours through the Holy Spirit pursuing us in faith and love. We can have knowledge of the Scriptures, but the only thing that we can see about one another's faith, and everyone has faith, some in Jesus and some in themselves or other things, the only thing we can see about one another's faith is how we treat and welcome one another. That word welcome that came up a couple of times is receive, accept, welcome one another. Paul decided to use the word weak to describe a group of Christians within the Roman church that had been fractured by an exile that had happened a few years before. The Jews had all been expelled from Rome in about 41 AD. This letter is a few years after they had been allowed to come back, but it was a harrowing, terrible experience, as you might imagine. Some of them who came back no longer uh, drank alcohol. They were beginning, they avoided meat, and they were keeping uh, religious days, like the Sabbath and also some feast days, okay? So those are the three things that mark the people Paul's describing as weak. Paul actually associates with the strong, who are those that don't feel bound to those things. And it's interesting, I believe as Jewish some of the Jewish Christians within the probably several house churches in Rome that he's describing as weak. There are actually about seven options for who are the weak in faith, but I'm not going to bore you with all those seven. I'm just going to tell you which one I think it is. But if you want to read about that, I have some resources for you. So they're practicing life and their religion in certain ways. And other people that were not practicing life and religion in those ways made them feel unwelcome, made them feel judged made them feel less than, treated them as, I shouldn't say feel as often, treated them as less than. And isn't it so great that we have evolved beyond that so well? None of us have any strong opinions about any of the things, right? Especially not in church. I do think our church is a welcoming church, but we have room to grow. And the thrust of Romans 14, 15, and 16 is welcome one another because you have been so welcomed by Jesus Christ and allow these lesser matters to be lesser matters. And boy, has the last 20 months been fantastic with respect to training us in guarding one another's conscience. I mean, the spectrum, not, not just our disagreements, the spectrum of our disagreements on these matters is incredible, isn't it? Everyone in this room has an opinion on masks, on how to raise your kids, on what are and are not good and helpful religious practices, vaccines and alcohol. And when I was writing the sermon, I wanted to liken it to those disagreements amongst us, but that isn't exactly fair to the text. Because we have not been expelled from our country and then allowed to come back, because the early church was wrestling with how Jewishly do we need to practice Christianity, and Paul's guiding them in that. So instead of attempting to liken it to those things that I listed to remind us of how tempted we are to not welcome one another, through judgment, the opportunity instead is to grow in accepting and receiving and welcoming 
one another. Why? Because we live to the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Paul uses this word over and over, especially starting in Romans chapter 5 through 8, but then he's referencing it again here. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way, asks a question, then answer it. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? That is our hope. And at the end of the sacrifice that Paul talks about in verses 7 and 8 that Meg just read in chapter 14, what the Heidelberg Catechism is referencing is not that we stay dead, but that we've been made alive through Christ. But don't miss the fact that Paul's referencing it again to motivate us to welcome one another, to receive and to accept one another. And then... So we live to the Lord, and then we seek peace with one another. And Paul is again encouraging us and asking us, if you've you've been here this fall, we've talked about this all along because I'm attempting to help all of us, myself included, grapple with the whole book of Romans. He's expecting us to remember that Jesus has made us right with God. Chapters 1 through 4. He's expecting us to remember that we now get to walk in the newness of life because we have the Holy Spirit. Chapters 5 through 8. We know that this is God's plan all along and that He keeps His promises and He never forgets His people. Romans 9 through 11. And then there are all these natural implications for doing life in church, doing life in our neighborhoods. I think Romans 12 and 13 probably set us up for Thanksgiving because it tells us how to treat friends and enemies and neighbors and acquaintances. And maybe all those people were with you around the table this Thursday. Maybe not. Paul's expecting us to remember all that and then, in light of that, learn to protect the conscience of our neighbor. And if they want to talk about what they have an opinion on that disagrees with us, we welcome that. And we actually have such peace from Jesus that we can handle that conversation. That actually happened a handful of times in my house this week and I was not expecting it. If you had told me the topics we were going to talk about, and how some of those conversations would have actually progressed, I would have just started laughing. And I'm not going to expand on them because then you would all judge me and I would be a bad pastor because I'm supposed to be encouraging you to not judge me and to welcome and accept me and you understand. There's a verse in here that Meg didn't read, but when challenging things come up in the text, I want to address them. Verse 23 from chapter 14 says this, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, referencing one of the practices, not eating meat at the time, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I've heard that verse used out of context to condemn people, which is ironic. Because the point of that, the point of that verse is, we are to become confident and then grow in that confidence of how we act like a Christian. Which means, if you don't like to bow your head when you pray, if you don't think that's a good way of showing honor to God, don't do it. If you don't like to fold your hands like this, or like this, or like this, or like this, then don't. If you're practicing your faith in a way that makes you uncomfortable because someone has convinced you and you have not become convinced in your own mind, 
don't do it. But if we take this out of context and say that anything that's not a direct overflow of your faith in Jesus is sin, we're missing the point because Paul's talking about receiving one another. Some of you like to stand up and sing loud. Some of you do not. Some of you like to kneel when you pray or receive communion. Others of you do not. Paul is not only telling us to welcome one another and giving us an example of how to not welcome one another, to judge one another for spiritual practices. He's fully expecting that we're going to grow in knowledge of how best to study the scriptures and be confident in that. We're going to grow in how to pray in such a way that we're fully engaged, mind and heart and will, with God as we pray. And we'll be confident in that kind of prayer. We know how we like to do corporate worship and we're uncomfortable with some parts of it that we don't like as much and we're growing in that too. Paul's expecting all of this. And it's part of seeking peace with one another is being comfortable with the different ways that we practice our religion. And in the middle of this passage, chapter 14, we have a lovely key to the whole of Scripture. Chapter 14, verse 17, is I think one of the most important keys to understanding Jesus' gospel. And Paul gives it in a context of welcome one another, treat these secondary matters or tertiary matters even, like what they actually are. And in the middle of that, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's the contextual part of it. What is it a matter of? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this is so important because if you read the Gospel of Mark, you hear this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. So in the middle of this, Paul tells us what that kingdom is. Righteousness and peace and joy. Through what Jesus did, Romans 1 through 4, through the Holy Spirit in us, Romans 5 through 8, because we can so fully trust God, Romans 9 through 11, we receive directions on how to live a life of life, righteousness. We receive joy, which is contentment in all circumstances. And we receive peace. And then we feel anxious and we remind our soul of the peace that we have because of Jesus. And we realize we're actually not fundamentally Anxious though we experience it, we're fundamentally at peace because of Jesus. We live to the Lord and we seek peace with one another for His glory. The point of our existence is to glorify God, which I think sounds odd to agnostics and to atheists, but it's actually as philosophical as it is religious. If God exists, then the point of His existence is that creatures... Glorify Him. Non-human creatures do that by existing. Dogs by acting like dogs. We do it by worshiping Him. And in that, we become more and more fully alive to Him and to life. In the middle of chapter 15, Paul's very worshipful in reminding them of things he's already said. And it's good for us to be reminded. A humbling thing about preaching you people, as many of you have been Christians almost twice as long as I've been alive. And I'm not always going to have something new to tell you. And that doesn't bother me because remembering what we know 
is strengthening to our hearts and to our minds. In chapter 15, Meg already read this, but I'm going to read it again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's a description of what we've been doing this morning. With one voice, glorifying Him. And then welcoming one another. Among other things, this means the greeting time is important. I know some of you wish it were quite uh, significantly longer. Some of you wish we didn't do it. We all get to grow up. I'm not calling it sin if you're introverted, but I'm saying part of church, because it's not. I actually think introverts are better at loving people than extroverts because they don't get as much out of it as we extroverts get out of it. So they're choosing to be there. That's an aside. Not sure I should be talking about it. It is my opinion, though. And I'm extroverted. Pull it back. The greeting time's important because friendship with one another is part of the opportunity of the family of faith. God did not leave us alone, first and foremost, giving us the Holy Spirit. Then he gives us people to worship with. Not the ones we would choose, but spiritual family regardless. Perhaps one that we're well equipped to grow in through learning to welcome and accept and receive one another. And then in the midst of chapter 15, he quotes 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 11. So he's quoting the law and the prophets and the writings to remind us again what he said in Romans 9 through 11 and indirectly the chapters before that, that this was always God's plan to bring his people together, Jew and Gentile. And he's saying that because the Roman church has been fractured by their exile and by their disagreements and by their inability or unwillingness to fully welcome one another. And then Paul starts talking about his plans in the second half of chapter 15. Verses 22 through 33. And whether you can remember this or not, I'm just going to summarize his plan. So Paul was at the time taking a Macedonian gift. That's three churches. Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, they had all given him money to take to Jerusalem to serve the poor through the Jerusalem church. And Meg read, perhaps you're familiar with the end of the book of Acts, the early church was very nervous about how Paul was going to be treated in Jerusalem. There was a prophecy about it, someone had a dream about it, Paul decides to go anyway. And the reason I'm telling you about this is, this is an indirect reminder of the trustworthiness and the truthfulness and the historicity of the scriptures. These are not simply religious texts that give us something to do with our beliefs. These are texts rooted in a specific time and specific people. Romans was not written to us, but it was written for us. And so when Paul gets all mundane, reminding them of his travel plans, it's not only because, it's not only as an indirect, ah, that's that's not how I want to say that at all, sorry. Paul's saying that because it's true. He's about to go to Jerusalem, then he's going to go to Rome, and then hopefully he's going to go to Spain. He also wants the Roman church to partner with him and help fund 
his mission to Spain. He's also going to continue to teach them about the gospel. And this reminds us that these are not disconnected from history letters. You read the end of the book of Acts, you'll see the context that Paul's telling them about. And he's also hoping that they're going to support and participate financially and by encouraging him, by welcoming him and he welcoming them when he gets to Rome. And this is for his glory. The confession that we use as a church is, um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So all of this, the mundane mission part, the welcoming one another, generosity, corporate worship, these are all interconnected parts of our worship, which also means our discipleship. This is how we grow up and mature in our love for God and neighbor, which includes mission. The challenge of preaching Romans is, Paul assumes you're really, really interested in what's happening. And therefore, I'm assuming you're really, really interested in what the work of Christ accomplishes for you. What the newness of life of the Spirit means and looks like. Does God indeed keep His promises? And then what are the implications of that? But if we will hang in there for the challenge, we're then freed into the lives of life, which are allegiance to Him. You, come in, you came in this morning with some affection for the scriptures, and also all sorts of mundane, and by mundane I'm not um, talking low of them, I mean, you have a lot of things on your mind about your regular life, and perhaps what happened last week with Thanksgiving, or what didn't happen last week with Thanksgiving, or things you're concerned about for the future. But if God's glory is the point of our existence that resets and settles us, that resets and settles us with our words towards our spouse or our children or our parents or our neighbors. That resettles us in our work in the world because it is for God's glory, not our own identity or um, even happiness. It resets us with respect to all of the challenges, perhaps even now, but especially as we leave. Challenges of fear and anxiety and shame. Challenges from our past that haunt us. Challenges from our future that we don't know what we're going to do with. When we're reminded that the point of our existence is His glory, that gives peace to us. It is not about us. It is about Him and His glory and His mission. Romans 14 and 15 and 16 fully assume that worship... Friendship, generosity, the mission of the church, which is more Christians and more mature Christians, are all interconnected. We all have a role to play in them. We all receive it from Jesus, who is the empowering agent of it, not us. And all of those are connected. We receive by faith, and then we act like a follower of Christ, which is Romans 12 through 16. And I love that throughout... The book of Romans, Paul can't help but worship. In chapter 16, the very last thing he says, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, after he reminds them with all those Old Testament texts, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
If you're a follower of Christ, you have received all of those promises. He has filled you with joy and peace through believing. By the power of the Holy Spirit, now you abound, which means flourish in those things. I hope that encourages you. Would you pray with me? God, we praise and thank you that you are God and we are not. We praise you because it is our opportunity to praise you because you are good. Because through faith in your Son, we are reconciled to you. Holy Spirit, we trust you and ask that we leave this place trusting you more. Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you and we ask that you connect our minds and hearts and will to that love. We praise and thank you for the gospel which indeed changes everything. Amen.